You are now listening to the Positive Majority Podcast. We keep it natural over here. We keep it organic over here. Got the best stuff on the planet over here. We have to keep it natural over here. We keep it live over here. We keep nature thriving over here. Nature is our God. We surviving over here. Natural. We keep it live over here. So we're starting fresh, starting now. So thank you so much for joining us today. I am online with Christina Lynn, an international wildlife biologist. Thanks for joining the Positive Majority podcast with us today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Ah, You're very welcome. So I just wanted to talk to you today and have you discuss, you know, what you do for a living. You know, what an international wildlife biologist is, what you're currently working on, the products that you're working on, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, sounds good. So uh, an international wildlife biologist um, can be a lot of things, but basically what wildlife biologists do is that they study the relationships that animals have with their natural environments and also they study how humans may impact those relationships how we might hurt animals how animals could um, be impacted by our activities Um, that's kind of the general gist of it and the international part is basically meaning that I am not constrained to one habitat area Um, I work all I've worked all over the world um, with animals and so basically the day-to-day life for a wildlife biologist and for what type of work that I do is that I look at the impact that human activities are having on wildlife. So that generally where I'm in Canada, so that usually comes in the form of um, environmentally harmful developments such as um, pipelines, uh, new oil and gas developments, housing developments, new infrastructure, new roads, all of those things have an impact on wildlife. And it's the responsibility of the people who are going to harm wildlife or have the potential to harm wildlife to pretty much figure out what is going to happen and how you can mitigate it or um, create less harm. So there's a lot of uh, harm reduction in um, wildlife biology, and that's a lot of what I do. And so one thing that I've been working on lately is creating some guidance pieces for basically the polluters and the developers of the world to have some sort of best practices for how to manage wildlife, how to reduce harm, and um, some triggers that might indicate that animals could be harmed in their activities. So those are some of the things I work on day to day, and it's a huge subject, and I could go into so much more detail, but that's the gist of it. Yeah, that is a big, wide subject. I know that there's a, a pipeline leak recently, you know, that the indigenous people were fighting against and say, hey, if you put this pipeline in, you know, it's going to leak. And sure enough, it did. So I'm sure that's a part of, you know, what you do for a living as well, right? Yeah, I don't think anyone in Canada right now is um, unaware in the environmental world of what's going on with the, that kind of uh, work. So yeah, definitely. Uh, they, that's big on my mind. Yeah, so you know, do you feel like you're fighting an uphill battle? Do you feel like people receive your work and like actually listen and like make changes to the policies and the things or like, how do you feel about that? Like, yeah, well, so kind of the way that I'm at it is I can't force anyone to make any changes. However, the government can um, through laws and our laws, environmental laws in Canada are not perfect. 
but there is a requirement that the people who are doing these activities must not harm wildlife unless there is no other way of avoiding it. So something like a pipeline going on, that's a bigger, that those sort of approvals are a bigger political decision. And so like on the boots on the ground kind of side, the best thing I can do is provide suggestions and um, my professional opinion of how to best protect wildlife. You know, this, I can't stop a pipeline. So unfortunately that side of it can be really sad. And in some ways it feels like I'm, fighting an uphill battle when I keep seeing more and more things get approved <laughs> but um, I think that it people are starting to come around um, you know the politics of things in Canada shift back and forth and they depend on province but I think we're slowly starting to realize that if we don't create new um, requirements for protecting wildlife and we keep approving all these projects we are not going to have much more wildlife left and our endangered species are not going to be able to survive we you know if we're going to approve harmful projects we have to also um, have those environmental laws in place and that sort of funding to do those studies ideally before anything happens with the infrastructure yeah so in your line of work do you work closely with you know any politicians any lobbyists you know who gets your you know studies who gets your data like after you're completing you know one project or another project yeah so it totally depends but the majority of um my work feeds into applications for permits um so Generally, it's going to be the government that is reviewing the type of work that I do. Um, so as a specialist in wildlife, um, you know, not every government official, not every um, person who's making those big decisions, right, to approve this pipeline or deny this pipeline, they don't, they aren't experts on wildlife. So that's why they pretty much hire people like me to get the science and get the data and to put it together in reports and in presentations and to present objectively this is what's going to happen if this development is built or um, approved and the thing with that is is I also stick with the science and I cannot make too many political decisions um, it's more like you know from what I've observed on the ground um, animals are going to alter the behavior if there was this new development put in in these sorts of ways so it really is kind of giving the information to everyone and hoping that they make the best decision for the animals. So it can it can be a little tough that way. But I think the way I stay positive about it is I'm doing the best science that I can. Um, I'm not giving anything, any, anyone any biased information, any sort of um, crooked, ignoring the facts kind of thing is like, this is actually what's going to happen. And I hope that, you know, you, you make the best decision from this information. And that's what a lot of scientists are doing. And there is a bit of a crossover between science and activism, but it's usually not done on much of like an official government level. Yeah, I've noticed that. I've noticed that. And I just read a report that like 11,000 scientists got together and were like, hey, we're at like a, a high level of climate danger. You know, mm -hmm. it's an extreme measure. And like, I just don't feel like, you know, general public is like, you know, people are confused, right? <laughs> totally. And I saw that too, all the scientists getting together. And that's, it's inspirational because there is some things that science 
is has a consensus on and one of those is climate change there is a scientific consensus that climate change is real so i think those big concepts like that people definitely are getting involved governments are even getting involved you know like i where i where i am at least um the government of canada is saying there is a climate change emergency uh what you do with that declaration is a different story, but um, at least there is some acknowledgement at this point. So at the big level, there's definitely um, a lot of people speaking out, but it's when you get with these smaller projects, that's where the conflict of interests and the biases and those, it starts to get a little bit more uh, sketchy. Right. And I, I've seen that, you know, it's kind of like why I even started this project is just to bring awareness you know, because sometimes it feels like, man, what can one person do? But like, I've had a lot of response just from like the small things that, you know, we've done to put out awareness on these type of topics, subjects, you know, global warming, climate change, you know, animals, things like that. I know we're in the midst of like the sixth biggest, you know, extinction right now. Is there a way, you know, if we stopped everything that we're doing and stopped doing pipelines and things like that, is there a way for us to like, make these animals like not be extinct or you know give them a habitat so that they can start repopulating again like what's your feeling you know being on boots on the ground how do you feel about that yeah you know it's it can be frustrating because I tend to see the worst of the worst no one really ever funds you or pays you to go out and see a bunch of wildlife you know, being undisturbed and happy and not being bothered by anything. Like I'm seeing where animals are, there's mortality. Like I see wildlife mortality a lot. I see altered behavior. I see impacts from climate change. So I do see kind of the worst of it. So I'm a bit, I try to be aware of that when I, when I think of like, if I'm being pessimistic or optimistic, and I think there are so many ways that we can turn it all around. And, you know, the UN's declaration that we have 11 years to turn everything around before, climate change becomes um, not, I'm not sure if they're saying irreversible, but close to that, you know, quite extreme. Um, so we do still have time, but it is going to require a big shift in the way that we consume things, the way that we look at the environment, the way we think about animals. Um, you know, everything about our culture has been based on consumption of animals, consumption of their habitat for our own gain. And to turn that around and tell people no that what that's not right is is extremely hard to do sometimes. So I think if we are able to create that culture shift, we can definitely everything is still reversible. Um, until a species is gone, until the very last animal is gone, like you can still reverse the fate of a species. All right, so there's hope. Yeah, that's there what is. You're telling us. Yeah, there <laughs> is. That's exactly why I wanted to, you know, have this conversation with you today is to, you know, put out the banner of hope, let people know, you know, you're in the middle of, you know, your boots on the ground, you're fighting the good fight, you see what's happening, you understand it, you know, from the scientific perspective. So it's like, I want people to hear your voice and be like, hey, she's working every day out in nature, out with the animals, she sees what's happening. This is a real thing. Now let's see what we can do to like turn the ship around. Yeah. So I appreciate what you do for a living. <laughs> so you. what I want to do is just kind of go back to the beginning, like where this all started for you. Uh, in your bio, you talk about being a wild child and growing up on a farm in California. And about six months ago, I just changed my whole life. I left corporate America and I moved to a farm myself. 
and the farmer and his wife they have two young girls and like i watched them you know growing up here on the farm just like living their best lives playing in mud playing in dirt what was that experience like for you and you know how did it shape you and push you into this direction of you know becoming a wildlife biologist yeah yeah you know it's so funny because you come from the opposite background and then look at those kids and you're like oh I wish I could grow up like that but like I didn't know how good I had it when I was a little kid yeah (laughs) yeah it really though like growing up in California and like my childhood like I'm so grateful that I was able to be raised in that way like it, it, it was incredible to really learn I guess the best way I can put it is when I was growing up the standard of my life the normal was being outside. I was always outside. Um, Inside was where you go to sleep at night when you're ready to go to bed. (laughs) Like I was always (laughs) outside. Um, And so I always am amazed when I see kids and that's not the standard and they they aren't fortunate to have that sort of exposure just to, to nature and the environment. And I think something like things like that and my experience really did shape me going into wildlife biology um mainly because I, the very first thing was like I knew I loved hiking and um just yeah just being outside being in nature but what really turned me to wildlife specifically was from that early age I had connections with farm animals and you know farm kids often are very close with animals because most farms are not vegan farms and there is Um, we had animals growing up that were slaughtered by my father, which definitely played into me going (laughs) vegan, but um, (laughs) I was able to form those connections with animals. And I think that I carried that, carried that forward, you know? Um, so I think all those things definitely, I don't think I would be where I am today if I, if I didn't grow up in that sort of environment. Right. So kids today are, you know, deep in the technologies with the computers, the televisions, the video games, the cell phones. And it's like, I believe, you know, we need to get them outside. So is there anything, you know, being doing what you do for a living? Is there any way to, you know, promote that for kids and like programs for kids where they can, you know, experience the great outdoors? You know, I think the problem with this is more socioeconomic and some many many of the kids that are staying inside and you know playing on the computers and stuff like they don't some of them don't have the ability even to safely go outside and I think that that could be one of the biggest things is addressing like uh, maybe bringing kids in schools and more educational programs because when they go home like if mom dad are working you know, till midnight trying to work a second job to survive and to pay their rent. Like they're not going to have the time or the money to bring their kids, you know, out on a hike after work. And so I, I see that so much that it really is a privilege now for some people to be able to go outside and leave the city maybe and experience nature. And so I think addressing like some core like wealth inequality is one of the biggest things and while it sounds not as related it it really can be but you know in absence of that I think school programs are a big one like a lot of kids don't go on their first hiking trail or step off pavement for the first time until they go on like a field trip at school you know things like that really can make a big difference to kids or subsidizing um, equipment for hiking backpacking all that 
um, can, can be a good option is just removing those barriers um, to people who might not be, have the opportunity to go outside. Yeah, that's 100% true. I can validate that because I grew up in Southwest Detroit, very urban area. And I had no idea about, you know, outdoors or hiking. I don't think it was until I was like 20 or 21, you know, a sophomore in college until I went like up north and mm-hmm. experienced, you know, forests and walking through trails and, you know, riding my mountain bike and things like that. And like 20 years old is old (laughs) you know so the experience that I'm having now has like opened my eyes all the way up and it's like I'm watching these kids play and I'm like you know all kids have this opportunity but yeah I think you nailed it on the head with that Mm -hmm. I appreciate your outlook on that so I came across your YouTube channel when I was searching deep ecology Uh, Your video was so informative and I appreciate it so much. I actually bought one of the books that you recommended and I started reading it and uh, I just loved the information and how you delivered it. Um, Could you give the people at home that are listening to this, you know, a little breakdown, you know, a short breakdown of what deep ecology is and why it's more important and more vital to us now more than ever? Yeah, absolutely. So deep ecology is something, it's a topic that really interests me because so much of the what we understand about ecology is based off of what humans can get from nature. So what deep ecology says basically is that all sentient beings, all even non-sentient beings like rocks and trees and everything in nature on earth has an inherent worth outside of what it could provide for humans, basically. So this is looking at it outside of a system where we're saying, you know, this wetland here will allow us to go duck hunting and then will allow us to um, dump some extra storm water in every so often. That's what it means to humans. But deep ecology looks at it, what that it has inherent worth in itself. It doesn't need to be pleasing to the human eye to be important. It just is because it's nature. <laughs> and so it's a bit of like a complex idea. And it sounds simple, but most people actually don't think this way. And when you even think about national parks, a lot of the conversation is shaped around our recreational use of national parks, instead of them just existing the way they are, because they have worth, and they shouldn't have to be harmed by humans. So that's kind of what the idea of deep ecology is. But one of the reasons why it's really important now is like I said, it is different than the way we've always managed things. Um, and by we, I mean um, colonialism and a colonial culture around nature because indigenous people have managed them differently in the past. But ever since um, the settlers came to North America, it's shifted. And now it's the, what can we get from it? How can humans like take everything we can from this landscape? And it's only just now starting to change and that's because we're depleting a lot of these resources um and even just calling them a resource you know it is that's kind of against what deep ecology says is looking at things as resources so it's more like yeah like the nature is being destroyed because we've taken too much and so now we need to step back and look at our relationship with nature and how we've even gotten to this point i love that i took one of the quotes from the book and I, it just like nailed it on the head. It said, to understand natural systems is to begin an understanding of the self. That's a huge dodge. 
And that's like, you know, 24 pages into the book, just blowing my mind. And I'm just like, you know, I sit here every day and I like juggle these topics, you know, me, Farmer Lindsay, we go back and forth because, you know, we want people to, you know, get back into being a part of the ecology and a part of the ecosystem and not, you know, be just a, a resource monitor, you know, that's just capitalistic and taking things away from it, killing the planet. And we're always juggling these huge ideas. And I, I can't wait to like go through the rest of this book and, you know, formulate some better ideas. But I was so grateful to find your page and that video. Um, so keep making videos because you're inspiring people out here. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. That means a lot. And I love making them and, you know, people who might not know about that, even if they just now, Oh, now I know about deep ecology, or maybe it'll make some people question things, which, which is what I want people to do. Yeah. I think what it is, it sets off one domino and you never know who you're going to inspire. I mean, that's how this whole entire conversation started. And I so appreciate it. So let's go back to the world of veganism. So obviously you have a love for animals and I'm sure that you're a vegan and it was an obvious choice for you, but how long have you been a vegan and, you know, what was it, uh, you know, that drove you to veganism and, you know, how does it work for you? Yeah. So I was vegetarian for a long time before I was vegan. When I was about 11 years old, I, I went vegetarian and that was like pretty much the first time I connected that meat was from a living being that was killed so that I could eat it. And that happened when I went to uh, In-N-Out Burger in California and I got a burger and it was in, I think it was in Stockton and it was right across the street from like this massive cattle farm. And <laughs> there was a sign or something on the door that was like our burgers are so fresh you can still see the cows across the street or something like that and I just my mind was blown I was just like never had put the two and two together like that <laughs> <laughs> so I told my dad that I never was going to eat meat again and he was like yeah right <laughs> and I didn't so that was like going veggie from the young age but you know things were a lot different then um, around vegans weren't that common, you know, until quite recently, there was a lot of vegetarian people in California, but not a lot of vegans, because I was just ignorant to the amount of harm that the dairy industry and um, the egg in industry had was doing, I just did, I just didn't know, you know, I thought I was doing everything I could being veggie. But, you know, of course, finally, when it was about two years ago, I went vegan. And that was because I decided to watch some of the videos that I had been ignoring about the egg industry, about the dairy industry. And then I pretty much realized right away that it's just as bad as the meat industry. And if I want to be ethically consistent, um, I needed to stop eating cheese and drinking milk. So that's why I went vegan. So it's somewhat new, I guess, just two years. But um, I immediately knew I made the right decision because I used to always get really sleepy in the afternoons and just groggy. And when I went vegan and started eating more of a whole foods plant-based diet, my energy levels were so high that I ran a half marathon that year because I was just like, I need to get this energy out. Like I feel so... <laughs> happy and energetic which is like incredible that's what everyone wants right like yeah 100 so yeah my journey is like very similar almost two years it'll be two years in march and i feel the same way like my energy is like through the roof 
Uh, you know, I've been blessed with like not having like a stuffy nose here in Michigan. It's all about like allergies and like your nose is always running, you know, especially around this time of year. And it's the benefits have been great, you know. And uh, you know, yeah, I, I remember the first three months of being vegan, I wanted to run to the hills and like tell all my friends, all my family. And I realized that like that was like the worst way to you know, promote what I was doing. So now I just like cook for everyone that I come in contact with. I'm cooking this weekend for my birthday and I just cook vegan food and have all my friends come and eat it. And, you know, I think that's the best way to do my part. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's tough because when you're like a new vegan, I think I read somewhere you have like an anger phase. Like I definitely had like an angry <laughs> vegan phase and I'm still, I'm still an angry vegan, but like I was, I want, yeah, you're right. Like I wanted to tell everyone. I was like, I can't believe that no one else is doing this. This is amazing. But like people do not respond well to that. You're right. So just showing people like the positive lifestyle and, you know, being an example is what I think gets people interested less the the angriness but I totally understand the angriness and I don't think anyone who feels like that is wrong but um yeah I found the same thing with me and my friends too is people definitely respond better to positivity and I take that from the environmental side too you know because I do a lot of videos about how to make a positive environmental impact and sometimes I tend to go down the negative hole really easily and start going down. This is all the bad things that we're doing and that's not what inspires people. So I'm trying to kind of take that knowledge and, and apply it for environmental conservation as well too. Yeah. I mean, when you name your business positive majority, people are always like, Hey, all the stuff you post is negative and it's about the world being on fire. And I'm like, I'm trying to spin it. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> but you know it's great so i know that being an international wildlife biologist you've been all over the world and one of the biggest stories this summer that people were all up in arms about were the fires in the amazon and i know that you have spent some time in the amazon and been there can you tell us you know from your first person perspective like what's going on over there what you were privy to see and you know is it, is it as bad as the news made it seem? Yeah, so I spent some time in the Amazon working at a wildlife sanctuary um, called Comunidad Intawarayasi. And they are one of the only animal sanctuaries in um, the Bolivian Amazon that is pretty much acting as a protector for wildlife. Um, so that was one of the first jobs I ever did actually in wildlife. And after I left there, I knew that's what I wanted to do because it was such an amazing organization to um, really make a difference to the individual lives of animals. So one of the, I didn't know what to expect when I went to the Amazon, like who does, but I kind of imagined it was like the documentary TV shows, you know, with David Attenborough. And it's just these, this incredible endless forest that, there's so many animals everywhere and it, there's no humans or maybe there's indigenous people, but not, um, you know, these big human cities or anything like just really untouched nature. And that's kind of what I expected. And in some ways there is parts like that, but in other ways, I was quite surprised at how fragmented the habitat was. So there was like some immense biodiversity, but then you go one kilometer down a hiking trail and it's just a stop and it's a cattle farm as far as you can see and you just don't expect it it's like you come out of these like dense jungles and then just see like 
a farmer with a bunch of cattle and that like blew my mind I you know I never knew that it was like that and you know that's what we're seeing more and more and more like especially with these fires being burned so that we can use the land for agriculture and it's really really heartbreaking to see that um and it was it was really surprising and it's it hasn't changed and it's gotten it's gotten worse um you know and the problem was before we were burning this rainforest which is awful in itself but now with added climate change and the winds and the hot weather and the um, disrupted climate patterns is that when we burn a forest it's not predictable and it gets totally out of control and unfortunately the wildlife sanctuary I worked at was actually impacted by the fires that were in the Amazon this summer and luckily all the animals were okay but it was a really really close call And so there's still so much that needs to be done there. And it's, I don't think people realize that if we keep going the way we're going, you know, our children or our grandchildren will not know what the Amazon rainforest is because it doesn't exist anymore. And that's something I never even wanted to think about. But um, unfortunately, like we're going down a bad path. (laughs) I'm thinking about positive, positive podcast, but you know, that's the reality of it. That's the reality that we can, within a generation, not have an Amazon rainforest. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But, um, you know, there is still so many people on the ground right now that are fighting this. You know, it's not just an empty forest with loggers in it. There are um, indigenous people there that are currently literally fighting to the death. Like people are being murdered by loggers, by oil and gas companies. Um, who are trying to be out there as protectors. So there are people who care so deeply. And I find that really inspiring is that, that there are people standing up for the environment and it's not just, you know, the people trying to hurt it. It, There's a huge, huge outreach of uh, so many people that are trying to save this land. Yeah. And that's the important thing. That's like, I think really important message to get out to, you know, every john dick and sally in the nation is that you know there are people that care you know there's people that care about animals there's people that care about the planet and like each one of us is doing like our small little part to do whatever we can you know because it seems like a daunting task you know to try to save the world but technically that's really what we're trying to do no that's so true and also like if you think about why are they burning it they're burning it so that they can sell you beef and you can control if you buy that beef or not. That's something that's within everyone's hands. So there's definitely ways, if you trace it back, that you can, you know, reduce that harm. Yeah. So speaking on, like, reducing our harm, when I started Positive Majority, I started as, like, a sustainability hub. I wanted pe- a place where people could come get information about how to become sustainable for the planet. And it's been good. Being on the farm has taught me that, you know, regenerative agriculture is actually going to be, you know, something that's super important. Um, And we have to, you know, regenerate the land um, before we can sustain it. We can't sustain the world as it is right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, From your standpoint, you know, what do you believe to be like the most impactful things that people can be doing today, starting today? Like if they listen to this tomorrow morning, they wake up. You know, what can they do in their lives that is going to, you know, start making a difference, you know, big or small? Yeah, that's a really good question and definitely something I try to talk about a lot on my channel. Um, but 
basically some of the best things you can do is, you know, vote with your dollars. So what that means is in some ways it is like picking those purchases that do less harm, like local foods, um, organic foods, vegan, as much as possible within your budget and what's realistic. Um, I know people tend to say, oh, vegan food, I can't afford it. It's inexpensive, but like, or it's expensive, but really like you think rice, beans, those basics and or whatever is local to your area, you know, like right now out on Vancouver Island, the squashes are like huge. And so I've just been eating a bunch of squashes and they're so cheap. They're dirt cheap because um, it's just what is local to my region that's easily grown there. And so finding whatever food wise is local to you and um, is as close as you can to your plate is the best way you can do um, it that way. And also too, I I would challenge that a bit and just reduce all consumption in general. And that kind of brings in like minimalism and, um, you know, harm reduction from that point of view is that everything has some impact. And it's the annoying thing when people say like, well, you know, you drink coffee and then the coffee, you know, the beans are grown here and then that reduces wildlife habitat and like everything we do, like everything we buy has some sort of impact. But if we reduce the amount of things that we buy, we're going to have less impact, you know? So I think minimalism and looking into that um, and how that might work into your life is a huge one. Um, more specifically too, with reducing consumption is, you know, as we all know, reducing our consumption of plastics is big. But one thing that some people don't know is we have the whole plastic straw thing all over the news and plastic straws are extremely harmful to our, you know, sea creatures. But some of the biggest um, forms of ocean pollution is fishing nets. So surprisingly, reducing your consumption of fish, particularly fish that are um, fished with harmful practices, uh, can actually reduce your ocean pollution footprint too. So everything's kind of connected in that way. So there's a lot of um, little things like that too you can work in and have a big impact across the world. So it's like you might not think not eating this animal is, you know, oh, it's not, not that big of a deal. But like it has these trigger effects. And it's like, well, now you're saving turtles because they're not getting tangled up in fishing lines. And I kind of like that because it seems like a small little change, but really it has like a huge impact if you look up the chain. Um, so those are some of the kind of things I suggest for just the day to day living. But the most important thing really is like, is your vote, you know, I think um, I'm not in the States, but I think you guys had like a, a vote. some some states had an election recently. But um, voting for politicians that have a strong platform, a strong environmental platform, but really more importantly, are the people who are going to stand up to the polluters and the people that are harming the environment. Because sometimes there's this idea that you can work with them and be buddy-buddy, but like we need people who aren't afraid to call people out and to stand up to polluters and hold them accountable for what they're doing. So that can be the most important thing you do is vote for the right person. So those are some of the suggestions that I have. Those are great successes. And I'm just gonna summarize those. Eat local people, vote with your dollar. The thing about buying vegan food too, I think people should be aware of is like read the ingredients because just because it's a vegan product, you know, some of that stuff has like palm oil in it, you know, which affects orangutans. Mm -hmm. It's like read the, instru or read the instructions, read the ingredients, you know, buy foods that, you know, have one name like bananas, mm -hmm. <laughs> oranges, you know, things that we like. 
obviously vote for the people that, you know, are for the environment and then less consumption overall. You know, I think that's a good one. You know, downsize your life. Mm-hmm. You don't need that many things to, you know, be happy and, you know, live a happy, healthy life. This has been so informative and so helpful. How can people find you, get connected with you, and watch your videos? Yeah, so the social media platform I'm probably most active on is YouTube. And so I make YouTube videos about environmental conservation, about my life as a wildlife biologist, and some more of the subjects that we talked about. And the best way to find me on there is just search on YouTube, Christina Lynn, wildlife biologist, and I'm the first one who comes up. Um, Or I'm also on Instagram at wildbiologist. Uh, and my website, wildbiologist.com. And I will put a link on our Instagram page the day that we release this so people can connect with you because you've given me so much information and you've been positive for me. And this conversation has been so great. I want to thank you again for taking time to speak with us here. I hope that, you know, one person that hears this, you know, gets something out of it and, you know, changes something in their lives. And I hope that impact just goes on and on and on and uh we have a happy planet here in the future Thank thanks you so much, much. Christina. i appreciate it thanks for the work that you're doing out there daily let us know at positive majority anytime that you know you need help from people i'll be more than happy to rally my troops and you know send them your way i love that thank you this was really good to chat yeah i totally appreciate it you have a great rest of your night and i will talk to you soon okay i'll talk to you later Bye. bye This is the part of the show where we want to give thanks. First, to Angela Gallegos for doing our awesome intro. Second, to Illuminati Congo for allowing us to use their song as our intro music. If you haven't heard of Illuminati Congo, go to iTunes, go to Tidal, go to Spotify, and download and listen to their music. They have some really great stuff. And I want to take some time to thank our affiliates you can go on our website positivemajority.com and support some great companies as well as supporting us shout out to inner vision apparel who makes a lot of their clothing out of recycled pop bottles and plastic bottles shout out to poseidon bottle making great water bottles so we can eliminate plastic consumption on the planet a big thank you to tree tribe who's one of our favorites here. They make some great stuff from yoga pants to wallets made out of leaf leather. So check them out, Tree Tribe. And then Cola Tree, who does some amazing hiking gear and makes all of their products very sustainable. They have some beautiful stuff. So go check them out on our affiliate market page. And Manduka, everything in yoga from sustainable yoga mats to yoga gear manduka has everything you need thanks for listening to the podcast we appreciate you have a great night